We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. What's up, everyone? I'm Laura Sextro, CEO of The Unity Project and your podcast host. On today's episode, I have a revealing conversation with Nicole Siratek, a registered nurse who traveled to New York City at the beginning of the pandemic and became a voice for the patients who needlessly lost their lives in inner city hospitals. After a video of her begging for help to save her patients' lives went viral, a target was painted on her back. In this episode, she shares her heart-wrenching stories of patients she tried to save the irresponsible one-size-fits-all approach, and medical mismanagement that led to so many deaths. You'll hear how she vowed to save lives and restore integrity in patient care by founding American Frontline Nurses and helping to create the Advocate Network. I'm so excited today to have uh, nurse Nicole Siratek with us. She has an incredible story, an incredible background. She is one of the strongest uh, women that I've had the privilege of meeting in this fight. Um, she is the founder of America Frontline Nurses, and I had the opportunity to listen to her speak at the Senator Ron Johnson hearings in Washington, D.C., and her story was so compelling that we I, I felt as though I had to get in touch with her and hear more about her journey and what she's been through uh, in this fight. So welcome, Nicole. I would love, I think we just, let's kick it off by you uh, telling us about your background and, and what led you to this point. Sure. So my name is Nicole Saratek and I'm a registered nurse, but for purposes of the licensing board, I am not a registered nurse on this mm -hmm. podcast. Those are just my credentials. <laughs> um, my background is critical care, trauma and flight. So I was a flight nurse for eight years, uh, critical care for eight years. So, and um, it was just amazing. And then I had two little babies back to back pregnancies. So I couldn't fly anymore just because, uh, you know, breast pumping and everything like in a helicopter <laughs> was just really challenging. So I decided to step down for that, for that. And um, then the pandemic hit and they needed uh, they needed nurses and they're, you know, the whole talk about the ventilators and I'm like, oh, I've got that. That's no big deal. I manage ventilators all the time. So mm -hmm. I'm like, that's, that's a great way to go, you know, support and serve your country. And you're not even military because how often do you, is there a call to arms for nurses? So I'm like, Hey, I can go. And they just needed me for 30 days. Right. I'm like, I can, I can do that for my country for 30 days. And then when I get to New York, it just, it wasn't like what the news was telling us because remember we were all sheltering in place in the beginning when this all happened, we were all just glued to our TVs and glued to what the television was telling us. And I get there and I'm like, this is not what <laughs> the news is telling us. Like, yeah. what is Where, going what, on here? What hospital were you at? You um, I was in inner city uh, NYC. So there okay. it was a uh, New York health and hospital system. Okay. So it was, and it was just crazy because, you know, I've, I've worked Ebola outbreak before I've worked the measles outbreak before I worked in refugee camps, like in Syria. Um, mm -hmm. and it just like, I've been in mass casualty situations before and, you know, in field medicine type situations before. And I'm like, why are we implementing the FEMA protocols? Why aren't we triaging these people appropriately per our FEMA protocols? I'm like, what are you people even doing? We, How were they triaging them? Um, they weren't. It's just as soon as they went into the ER is as soon as mm -hmm. they would intubate them and then set them up to one of the makeshift ICUs. And I'm like, why are you intubating them? Like, for example, my little Hispanic lady, as I referred to her in my video, mm -hmm. um, is she came in and in her medical record, it said she had a temperature like 101. And mm -hmm. she came in because, and it literally said in the medical record, 
because that's what the news told her to do. Remember it was saying, if you have a temperature, if you have, you know, coughing, fever, chills, all these things, please go to the hospital. You could be infected. And that's what she did. Her door to intubation was 15 minutes. She had absolutely no respiratory um, complications at all. She literally was intubated for the simple fact that the ventilator was a closed system because remember in the beginning, we didn't have enough PPE. Right. We didn't have enough mm-hmm. of the appropriate masks and, and the respirators and everything like that. So the um, staff was just intubating them and putting them on ventilators. So she came in, they sedate her and just put intubator. her right her. And wow. that's how she ended up on the ventilator. And that's what created your ventilator shortage and therefore your nursing shortage. Did you experience a nursing shortage from your perspective when you were in New York? No, there was so much staff that it was like, I've never seen anything staffed so well before. I mean, granted, there was probably a two to three week delay from the time that the, that, you know, it started to hit the United States by the time I got there, but there was so much staff that, I mean, it was strictly nurses though. We didn't have too much ancillary staff. We didn't, we only had one CNA for the entire unit. But then again, we worked together to help each other. Um, I mean, we, they didn't get respiratory therapists. They didn't get physical therapists. They didn't get rad techs. Um, you know, all those additional people that you need as your integrative healthcare team, they didn't get. So we had plenty of nurses. I've never, I never had more than two patients at a time and I was okay. able to help assist the other people next to me, but there wasn't a staffing shortage. They were cranking nurses in so fast And that was part of the problem because yes, you selected the wrong nurses because they just thought a nurse is a nurse, doctor's Mm -hmm. a doctor. They didn't realize that we were, we had specialties just like doctors did. And that created part of the pandemonium that, you know, on the units. So I, you know, we know now that those, what, what happened early on in, with regard to the response for COVID-19, especially in New York as we were seeing some of these, these treatment protocols, we know that that was the wrong protocol. Um, it seems to me, interestingly enough, that those protocols are still being used today. Maybe not to the, to the degree, maybe not that, you know, you have a patient come in, they immediately get sedated, they get put on a ventilator, they get mm-hmm. given remdesivir. Uh, but it seems to me like there hasn't been any uh, progression or uh, change mm-hmm. or observation of how to do things better in the hospital setting. I'm still hearing terrible mm-hmm. stories about patients that have unfortunately um, met a, a negative outcome. I'm still hearing about, about um, when people go into the hospital setting that they're, they're not given access to early effective treatment. Nope. Um, ever since Senator Ron Johnson, um, they aren't using remdesivir to the extent that they were. I mean, there are some small pocket hospitals that are still using it. They're just trying to get it as an, as an infusion now into the nursing homes and give it to children. But if you look at Gilead's like stock, no one's buying that narrative anymore, but it is still being somewhat used in the United States. But the problem is, is that they're still held to whatever dogma that the protocols, the hospital sets, not the physician, not, not the care provider, but the hospital administration sets these protocols. And that's what the doctor has to follow. If not, if they try and do anything else, then they're, you know, in trouble as well. So a lot of what we do, or a lot of what we see is, you know, they're still not managing the fever. They're Mm -hmm. still not using budesonide. They're not even using multivitamins. A new thing that's come around is that they try to dry the patient out. And this has been going on at least in the last six months where they think Mm -hmm. that it's a fluid volume overload with these infiltrates. So they try to decrease the fluid volume that the patient gets. So they'll, you know, the patient before they end up on a ventilator, they won't give them food and they won't give them water, no food because in case they have to intubate them, which is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard because we've intubated people. I mean, in the field, we intubate them all the time. We don't say, oh, well, we can't intubate you because you just had lunch. Right. It's the most bizarre thing because we put an NG tube in and we decompress your stomach. Very, very bizarre. And then they deny them water. Um, I spoke with one father. He had a 13-year-old son that was in the hospital with COVID and the thing that they had the water. And a 13-year-old with no core, no, no, not medically needing no comorbidities, anything like that, should have had a good outcome. But because they denied him food and water, he died on the fourth day because he was denied water. I mean, we can only go four days without water. We can go much longer without food. 
but we can't we can't go longer than four days without water. And the last thing that he said before he's died is that he was hungry. And the father's oh just God. consumed with this guilt um, because he had listened to the providers. And I'm like, what is going on? So, I mean, yeah, we're not using the remdesivir anymore, but now the narrative is switched to these bizarre things that are going on in the hospital, still not using multivitamins. Some providers and hospitals still don't think you can use ibuprofen. It's, it's absolutely bizarre. So in that case, this, this 13 year old boy was denied even water mm-hmm. for four days, four yeah. days, medical practitioners would know better, right? They would know that that could lead to, um, system failure, right? That's, that's literally, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, we're on the same page here, but they're, they literally are just following these, like with the blinders on, they're not, they're not using their critical thinking skills anymore. I mean, heck, they're not even practicing basic medicine anymore at this point, Mm -hmm. because we all know, even the layperson knows that you have to, you know, you have to have some type of fluid intake or you'll end up in renal failure. You know, you, you actually can dehydrate and die. And and so as to why they're following it blindly, I have no idea. And it's really concerning because we see this all the time. It, It happens with such a frequency that like we literally train our nurse advocates. Okay. Make sure that they're getting the appropriate amount of food and fluid, whether they're on the vent or off the vent and make sure you're monitoring their labs because then the alternative to that is fluid volume overload. Like what happened with Tamar Drock and Franca Patone, where they gained over 20 pounds of water weight because no one was managing the fluid intake. Mm-hmm. So what, and what ha- what's the ramifications for that practitioner, that, that doctor and, and the nurses involved in that scenario? Nothing because they were in a state that had blanket immunity for COVID diagnoses. So therefore they, there is no repercussions. Do you see any, uh, medical professionals questioning? I mean, I've had conversations now with several people in the medical community, obviously doctors, we've had the opportunity to speak with, uh, nurse Aaron. And one of the things that was, was really, um, bewildering to me was to hear that this is going on. And to know that there are other people in this environment that are witnessing the same behavior, people that are medically trained and they're not asking the questions. So was that your experience as well? Yeah. And, you know, I think part of it, and I told Mickey Willis this for his documentary, like Plandemic 3, is that part of it is they're just there to punch the clock and, and, you know, pay their bills, which to a certain extent I can understand. And then part of it is they have nothing to compare it to because, you know, you have the same nurses and the same doctors that work on the same units in the same hospitals. You don't have people coming from different hospitals saying, Hey, we tried this, we did that. And it worked really great. Um, and so there's, there's no comparison. They only know one thing. They know what they're told and they, and they fought and they do what they're told. Um, so they have nothing to compare and contrast to, to see that there's an alternative way. And if you yeah. ask any, you know, doctor, like if they're following up on research, like what's going on, ask any nurses, because I'm even, I was in the ER multiple times in April. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, you don't check the literature and you're a COVID nurse and you're a COVID doc. And, you know, mm-hmm. you work the COVID units and, you know, the research and they're like, oh, I don't have time for that. So they don't have time to stay abreast, abreast of the important information that could have a tremendous impact on their patients, but they continue just to go along with, with the narrative and they're watching people mm-hmm. die. Um, ethically, that just seems, it seems shocking mm-hmm. to me. I, I know it's happening. I, I've, I've actually experienced the, um, the asinine behavior, let's just say in the medical community that's happening right now, myself, uh, I've shared the story that I've had a family member that, uh, needed to go to the to a hospital and they were in the emergency room and I was denied access to seeing, uh, this loved one because I don't have a vaccine card. And after having mm-hmm. a, a fairly in-depth conversation with the nursing staff and explaining, you know, would you agree or, or disagree that, that even though you're vaccinated, you could still acquire and transmit the virus. We all came to the agreement that that was actually true, that even mm-hmm. though you're vaccinated, you can still acquire and transmit the virus. Um, they, they still were just, you know, quote unquote, following hospital rules. So at what point do we, um, expect that people that have taken an oath, um, the Hippocratic oath, they have a, a, a very ethical obligation and, and moral duty to 
stand up and say, no, this doesn't make sense. I'm not going to go along with the crowd. Uh, at what point does that, does that start to happen? I think it happens when they decide to put the patient before their paycheck. And you'll see that many people are more concerned with their paycheck than they are with their patient because then they, they would start questioning things because I mean, when you ask them that, like, well, why won't you let me in? Well, we're following orders. Well, can't you just sneak me in? Oh, I'll get in trouble. I'll get fired. Right. Is that what they said? I'll, I can get fired. And I'm like, so at what point in time do they put the patient before the paycheck? Mm -hmm. Um, and I understand, and I don't mean this from like a point of arrogance where I'm like some financially secure billionaire by any means. Um, I understand that they have bills to pay. Sure. They, they have a family to provide for, but at what point in time are you just complicit in murder? Mm -hmm. And is that paycheck worth it? And you see that many of us have stepped away from the bedside. Um, many of us are on the outside periphery fighting this fight, trying to save, like, save these patients. Mm -hmm. But they also don't understand that they have strength in numbers if they all just stood up together. I mean, yes, maybe the administration may take out one or two of them, maybe fire one or two of them, but hospitals cannot function without their staff. Right. They literally cannot. So they actually have the power to change this at any point if they decided to have the courage to do so. I know that you have, at least when I was listening to your testimony uh, in front of Ron Johnson, uh, I know that you have shared some of your own personal experiences. And I would love to hear more for those people that haven't heard about your experience of, of really trying to get help to patients. Oh God, that is like a, it's like, it's like exacerbating, like even talking about it. So in the beginning, like as the, as the narrative, like changes, we have to reinvent the way that we advocate for people, because as nurses, we, we know dysfunctional workarounds, we live mm -hmm. and breathe and work in a dysfunctional system. So we create dysfunctional workarounds to make the system work to get the job done. And so in the beginning, we were able to get patients ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or vitamin C and D and Q-certin and things like that by partnering with Ralph Larigo Law Firm in Buffalo, New York, and then ad hoc, uh, pro hoc vice onto a local attorney in the state to help get that patient those uh, medications. So then, you, as So you as a nurse, you were actually partnering with a law firm to intervene and get patients the necessary uh, mm -hmm. and effective early treatment. Yes, um, American Frontline Nurses is a 501c3 mm -hmm. nonprofit. And so the yeah. donations that we get would, uh, would fund those uh, lawsuits and pay okay. for the retainer. And um, we would, um, there's a federal um, act called the, physician, the, the right to try or the physician's right to try and 31 states have enacted it. And that's what we worked on in those states is that you have the physician's right to try, which automatically releases you from liability, you know, of using anything off label, right. um, the hospital's removed and no one can be sued, um, you know, for death or harm or disability so, um, because so the just patient to, is terminal. Right. So just to clarify, if you're, if you're a patient or if you're a family member of a patient, there is a mechanism that you can mm -hmm. actually employ to get the doctor to give uh, alternative but potentially, and, and I say potentially, um, it's, it's actually, we know that there, these are mm -hmm. alternative um, early effective treatment protocols. So there's actually a mechanism to do that. Yes, uh -huh. but the problem is, is A, do you have the money for the retainer? And B, can we file the lawsuit fast enough before the patient dies? Uh, for example, Tamara Drocken in um, Palm Springs, uh, Palm Beach, Florida. She was at a hospital there and the opposing counsel knew that she was running out of time, that she was going to die imminently, eventually, probably within the next 30 days. So they kept, you know, we got Ralph the Regal Law Firm, we got um, a local attorney and we were fighting it back and forth, back and forth in court. And they kept extending it and extending it, knowing that she would die. So that's why I say, if you can, as soon as your, as your family member ends up in there is sell off everything other than like the children <laughs> um, and get the money for the retainer and get the process going. Because if you wait until the last minute, there is the bureaucracy of the courts and then there's holidays on top of it. 
you know, so many times we lost somebody because we were just on the cusp of saving them, but then a holiday shut the courts down. So, I mean, there's all of these little bureaucracies that we deal with. Mm -hmm. um, there's that, we um, have filed cease and desistes to get patients food. We've <laughs> I've Ubered people food before in the hospitals that weren't intubated. Um, we don't even waste our times with ethics committee meetings anymore because um, they're absolutely pointless because they're just going to say no to everything that you ask for. This is insane. I mean, we're yeah. talking, it almost sounds like you are, these people are contained in uh, uh, like a, something that would be akin to like the Holocaust camps. Mm -hmm. um, and we're smuggling in care and resources and food for them. Yep. And families have done that too. However, legally, even though I'm not a nurse in this podcast, I must advise against that. <laughs> gotcha. So it just, it, it, it's overwhelming to me that in that scenario, you were just describing where you have, um, this woman who is, is, a, is essentially going to die if she does not receive medication and all that the family is doing is asking for the opportunity to try and the opposing counsel knows that she's going to die mm -hmm. and they're not even willing. Their role in this is to ensure that she does, her family does not have the ability to um, even Their try job is to protect the, um, to protect the hospital, because if they allow that family to do it, they would have to allow other families to do it. And it's not FDA approved for the use of COVID. Interesting. Well, you know, what else is not FDA approved? Everything um, else. It, <laughs> right. Especially <laughs> the vaccine, right? It's still under an emergency use authorization. And I think a lot of people um, are under the mis misconception that in fact, it's been FDA approved because we've been, we've been deploying the vaccine into the human population for so long. And of course we now mm -hmm. see a lot of the negative side effects. Uh, so as, as a nurse, were you also seeing uh, patients dealing with side effects, um, adverse reactions as a result of the vaccine? Um, yes. Up until I was fired for telling a patient not to get the vaccine until they stopped, spoke with their healthcare provider. Yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy because I was concerned um, about a GI bleed that the patient had. And it was obviously contraindicated uh, literally on the form. Mm -hmm. um, we saw like in our elderly, a huge uh, jump in, uh, leukemias, aggressive, aggressive leukemias, nice. especially people who were in remission for several years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every six months they would go and get you know checked up and, and, oh, yep, you're still in remission. Everything's fine. We don't need to do anything. Get the vaccine 30 days later. Um, they're dead. Um, another huge one was clots that started to happen, but most people didn't catch on early on to this because it was the elderly and, and mm -hmm. isn't uncommon. For the elderly to have strokes and heart attacks, but it became very um, obvious when, you know, the 30 to 40 year old or the 20 to 40 year old range was starting mm -hmm. to have these issues because let's face it, that is not something that happens without, you know, an outlier type reason. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what has been going on. I mean, that's its own ringaroo right there. I mean, we dealt with, um, parents getting a hold of us because we've had teenage girls that won't, they don't, they never not have a period now. And, um, uterine ablation was one option. A hysterectomy was another option because they're literally like having to get transfusions because oh like they cannot, they don't stop having a period. They're losing massive quantities of blood, giant, uh, bright red blood clots. Um, we have, uh, children having strokes, children having heart attacks. Um, we've had clots in the arms and legs of children and young adults that have caused amputation, oh my goodness. Um, stroke that's left people disabled, um, mm -hmm. no longer able to provide for their family. We've dealt with a case, uh, baby Milo. He's a five-year-old autistic little boy who got the vaccine immediately ended up on a ventilator. He's still on the ventilator. Oh, it's heart-wrenching. Um, I'm trying to think of a couple other cases that stick out, but typically it's, it's just, um, oh, we had a little girl, she was six, uh, brain dead because of brain swelling. Mm. Um, and that led to another issue, um, is that the family wanted to donate her organs mm -hmm. and I'm like, you know, I was, I was working with one of the family members because it's a very, very, very sensitive subject. And I'm like, 
Well, if that's like, you can tell them, I mean, I understand why they would want to, so that way they can save other children because as a flight nurse, we've transported many organs and many donors. Um, And it's always heartbreaking, but those organs are always needed. But now, I mean, look at it this way. I mean, this is how I conceptualize it is if this was a hepatitis patient or an HIV patient and we transport. Um, took those organs and then put them into a HIV or hepatitis negative patient, right? Like that you're going to give that patient hepatitis or HIV. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how I conceptualize this because we are seeing um, a very large uh, organ rejection rate going on as well. And it's, and people think, oh, well, you know, the organ rejection rate, you're probably like a, a you know, an alcoholic that got, you know, started drinking again. I'm like, no, we're seeing heart rejections. We're seeing kidney rejections. We're seeing the liver rejections. I mean, lung rejections and typically not at this rate. Do we see organ rejections like this in transplant patients? And it could be a, the um, blood because they are not screening for vaccination or what we like to call pure bloods. Mm-hmm. because any pint of blood, any unit of blood can come from up to 10 to 15, I think 10 to 15 donors. So oh, a good chances are you're getting spike protein in that. And then mm-hmm. no one is screening for these organs and, and if they came from a vaccinated individual or not. Right. Well, and I've also been told that if you're on the organ donation list, the transplant list, excuse mm-hmm. me, uh, that oftentimes if you're not vaccinated, you will be rejected, um, off the transplant list. Yes. And we deal a lot with that too. Um, we had one individual, it was, um, middle-aged man. He got two doses of Pfizer and Mm -hmm. it caused severe myocarditis and heart failure. Mm. And he needed a heart transplant, but they would not let him onto the, the transplant list until he got a booster. And I was talking with Daniel Horowitz about this at the blaze is that we will fight with these, like against the organ transplant, um, you know, organization and whatnot, because it's, it's by region right? about like these protocols. I'm like, you, you know, you have to be healthy in order to receive any vaccine. Okay. These people are obviously not healthy if they're needing an organ transplant. Right. And so we'll get attorneys, we'll fight the system and everything like that. But the, the organ transplant organizations are now making deals with patients that if we get involved and we make a hullabaloo about it, that if they sign an NDA um, and they say not to talk to the media, not to talk about anything like that, then they'll give them medical treatment. We're also seeing this in hospitals as well with basic medical treatments. I, I literally saw one, um, I wish I, it's probably back in my file cabinet, one uh, family we're advocating for, for the transplant uh-huh. list. It literally says that they cannot work with American frontline nurses. Uh, well, like we were literally, it literally said it in the end. Hey, you know what? I think you guys are, are uh, affecting change then when it's getting yeah. to that point. So I think that's actually a, a good thing. Uh, it's, that's so shocking to me that this is allowed. Right. And what's, you know, I say this every time I go, we, we do one of these, these podcasts and all of our, you know, the guests that we have on, but it never ceases to amaze me that this is not so transparent to the general public and why uh, people continue to just um, get vaccine after vaccine knowing that you can still acquire and transmit the virus. So it's not really providing any health and safety mechanism. And in talking to several doctors and and really looking at some of the data that's just now starting to come out, I think one was out of the UK, one was out of Israel, that even taking the vaccine, I mean, even if you set aside the fact that that there are known uh, risks, so the, the risk benefit analysis, the risk far outweighs the benefit. But even if you set that aside and just said, okay, it's somewhat innocuous, you can take it, you may not have protection, but um, you know, I think at least it will it will lessen the severity of the virus. Should I get it? There's significant data now showing that that's actually not the case, and in fact if you're vaccinated, you're more susceptible to acquiring COVID-19 and having a a more dire outcome than, than say someone who's unvaccinated. Has that been your experience as well? And what you've seen? Yeah, we, I mean, there are people who still will send us hate messages and everything like that on social media and to our email. I get like horrible letters mailed to my home and to our PO box at American frontline nurses Mm -hmm. about how we're killing people because we're telling people not to get the vaccine. And I'm like, Hey, no one's saying not get the vaccine, your body, your choice. 
like we support whatever decision you, you make, but we are concerned that patient harm is happening and no one is there to help these people. Right. And so it's, it's just ridiculous that people are still buying this narrative because I believe only one message is being allowed to be presented to the, the main public. And that's on the, I, you'll get the snippets in the, in the, in the media that, Hey, the, you know, the vaccine doesn't work. It's only like 10% effective, you know, even using critical thinking skills, thinking you need a booster every six months. Right. And, um, they, they won't, they won't look at it. I mean, it could be part because of only the one message being streamed at them repetitively, where it becomes almost like a, a mantra or a dogma. Mm-hmm. The other part is too, is that to accept an alternative narrative, alternative reality where, Hey, I did all these things and I could potentially be harmed by them. Mm-hmm. Many people don't want to actually accept that reality. I mean, it's, you know, when I try and explain it to people is, you know, if you believe in God and all of a sudden there was definitive proof that God did not exist, that would shake your world. It would, it would destroy everything you've known. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's what I kind of explain it to, uh, you know, about, and mm-hmm. they're like, I can see now why they don't want to see anything else. It's almost like an addiction. Sure. And if anyone's ever dealt with someone who's been addicted to drugs or alcohol, you can't make them change until they're ready to change. Sure. You just have to be there when they're ready to change. I think mm-hmm. I talked to Dr. Cariotti about this. I'm like, I feel like we're dealing with addiction almost. Right. Well, and it's interesting because people, um, they have this blind faith that their doctors and medical practitioners are going to, um, always first and foremost, that they're always more informed. And secondly, they're always going to do the right thing. And I just find that to be an interesting human psychology. I personally have someone that it just, I always ask questions and, uh, I, I actually went to the doctor recently and just because I was curious, uh, I said to, to the doctor, tell me what your position is on, on vaccines. And the doctor immediately said, well, I'm, I'm a big believer in vaccines. I mean, I'm, I'm vaccinated three times and I'm thinking about going to get my fourth tonight. And so my next natural question was, well, that's interesting. Um, how do you educate yourself about the vaccine? How do you understand what the vaccine contains? How do you understand the efficacy, the uh, health impact? How do you understand whether or not there are any adverse effects? You know, I went through on the whole list and it really came down to, you know, the answer was, well, I, I just, I really, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a big believer in vaccines. And I said, well, do you, are you getting information from the CDC and the FDA? You know, after, after about five minutes of trying to press and really understand where no this doctor was, there was no answer there. The, the doctor is also following, um, whatever that the general narrative is. And, you know, my question then has to become at what point do medical pr- uh, practitioners have a fiduciary and ethical duty to seek out those answers and to critically think and to really understand what they're introducing to their patients? You know, I think it goes back to the indoctrination in medical schools and nursing schools because we were taught to critically think up to a certain point and we're not taught to ask questions past the certain point. This is it. Mm-hmm science is settled. And so it's almost like grooming how like, you know, pedophiles groom children. Like, I feel like they've been groomed through their education, um, to not ask questions and that, and that is a typical response out of physicians or even nurses. When you ask them like, well, what, what did you do to look at the research? Well, I just trust them. I just do. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this isn't gravity. This isn't the sun. This isn't the spin of the (laughs) earth things that we can definitely trust. Right. The rest is let's ask some questions. Right. Um, so I think it goes back to that indoctrination because you're not taught to ask those questions. You're taught right. to ask questions up to this point and nothing beyond. And you're a quack if you do. I mean, mm-hmm. right. You're an anti-vaxxer if you do. Um, even in nursing school, I said, come on. You know, I said, nothing is a hundred percent effective for a hundred percent of the population. I'm a biochemist, like, you know, maybe right. an outlier there's outliers. If there's just one, then it is not a hundred percent. And I got pulled aside. I got in trouble for questioning really? it. And I'm like, you know what? Science, the science, like 
tells you that there's these things called outliers, right. you know, I mean, yes, there could be, you know, correlation causation. Maybe they are to a certain extent effective, but they are never 100% effective because of each right. bio individual that you put mm-hmm. it into. Um, and I got a lot of trouble <laughs> in nursing school because I'm like, you know, not everyone can have this. And I even, I did it with antibiotics. I'm like, not everyone can have antibiotics. I mean, we've right. seen that in our elderly population mm-hmm. with penicillin and sulfa drugs. And it's just so, and I have such great concerns about the future because now in medical and nursing schools and any allied health professional uh, program mm-hmm. that if you aren't vaccinated, they won't let you into the program. They right. won't let you into clinical sites. Mm-hmm. And so you are selecting for only one type of person to go through those professions and populate our healthcare setting, which is only the ones that right. conform to the narrative. Right. That's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. I mean, those, and, and it's interesting, you're, you were saying you were getting in trouble for kind of questioning and saying that, that it's not a one size fits all. Isn't that the basis of the scientific method and, and really the root of medicine? Um, at least my experience has been that there is, you don't go to your doctor and say, doctor, I have these symptoms. And then there's an exact answer for exactly what you have. I mean, there's, there's a process that the medical, um, practitioner goes through, right. To understand what, um, what situation, medical situation you might find yourself in, right. If you come in and you say, doctor, I've got a headache and a stomach ache, and I just don't feel so great. Well, there's no, um, definitive answer that says this is exactly what you have. Those, mm-hmm. those symptoms, then the next step in that process is you start to deploy diagnostic tools, whether it's blood tests, mm-hmm. whether it's EKGs, whether it's you know, MRIs and so on, obviously you, you would know much better than I would, but there's a process and based on the, the results of those diagnostic tools, then you can start to formulate some, um, some type of estimate as, as to what the patient might have. I mean, some, and of course there, are, I, again, you can speak to this more, more than I could, but I would imagine there, of course, will be certain t- tools and diagnostics that lead you to a more definitive answer. My point being is that there is no you go in, you tell your doctor that you have a headache and a stomach ache and the doctor goes, okay, this is exactly what you have. And they're exactly right. There is a process that they must engage in. Um, it's a discovery process, right? Yep. I mean, you nailed it on the head. I mean, there's, <laughs> I mean, you start off with like the most simple explanation. And then if the symptomology does not get better, then you employ those diagnostic and you start digging further. It's like, you've got to be Sherlock Holmes. And this goes back to, you know, medical negligence, you know, medical malpractice being the third leading cause of death in the United States is because there is so much human error that people die. And I'm like, we're supposed to have these, you're supposed to correct each other. You're supposed to ask these questions. And when you don't, the patient suffers. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we need to really get back into like, into, you know, basic standards of care that can be tailored to the unique bio individual that you're caring for. Because I mean, how long did it take them to realize that African-Americans had different gramellular filtration rates in their kidneys <laughs> and, you know, and Caucasians, you know, and they deploy certain drugs that could be, you know, um, you know renal, um, you know, imperative. It's just things like that. I mean, thalamide, how many years did they cripple an entire generation of children because pregnant mothers were using it for nausea? Um, you know, just, I, I, I don't, gosh, it still catches me every time. Why aren't we critically thinking? Why aren't we asking questions? Right. And that seems to be kind of, in my mind, the crux of the issue, right? So you have this scenario where we have this, uh, it seems to be um, a large portion of the medical community that are just, it's almost like they're punching a clock. And I, and again, I don't want to speak derogatory against the, the medical community. I think there's a lot of people out there that are doing good work, but it, by and large, it seems that the thought process is that they're coming in, they're following what they're told to do. And there's not a lot of just, I mean, if you, you have to take it down to the very, very kind of base level. And the first step in everything that we've been talking about is asking questions. I know as a patient, I ask questions and I expect that the medical staff will also ask questions. And one of the basic questions in my mind is first and foremost, uh, why are so many people that are put on a ventilator dying, right? Secondly, 
why are so many people that are given remdesivir dying? And I'm somewhat saying this rhetorically because I think we all know the answer to that. But then of course the evolution of questioning would be what, what is it contained in the vaccine, right? And then what's the benefit of the vaccine as, as, a, as opposed to the risk? And you have to correlate that. Again, it's this whole critical thinking and question asking process that I'm just not seeing take place. And in fact, I'm seeing it being discouraged. You know, I, and honestly, it is discouraged and it comes from the hospital administration that is following all the three letter alphabet soup organizations that tell them what to do or they won't get paid. So it comes down to, you know, profit before patients, but you know, wouldn't you want to be the hospital that had like the lowest COVID mortality rate? Like, you know, absolutely. Or, I mean, it's kind of like Florida. Let's use Florida as an example. Right. Everyone is fleeing to Florida because Florida got it right. And everyone's like, oh, you guys are crazy. You know, you guys are using hydroxychloroquine. You're using horse meds, all this stuff. But it's like, why are people choosing to go there for care? Why are people choosing right. to go live in Florida when they lived in all these other locations? Like, why are they fleeing? I right. mean, just like, would you like to be a Newsom or would you like to be a DeSantis? Like, wouldn't right. you want to be like that hero or whatnot? I mean, because mm-hmm. you would actually, with that type of reputation as a hospital or a physician or a provider, make up with a huge volume. You'd have a wait list trying to get into your doors. You would make sure. so much more money. And so it's so bizarre and nefarious that they don't want that because literally if everyone across mm-hmm. the country is dying of COVID, and you're the one hospital that has this huge survival rate, you know, everyone would come to you, you'd be, you know, cranking them out, you get that FEMA money, you get that extra 14,000, you know, per patient, you right. would be running in the red for probably for the first time in, you know, the hospital administrative history that they actually turned to profit. Right. So it, it's, it's even a bad business model. If you take out the humanistic part of like saving lives and the actual ethics of saving lives and look at the business model, it's a very bad business model. Wow, that's an interesting perspective when you think about it from that from that standpoint. And I know that I've been told by multiple um, sources, and I think that we've even seen evidence. I think we've seen some of the um, the uh, documentation showing that that the uh, federal government is paying hospitals for every COVID diagnosis, and uh, they're mm-hmm. they're paying them for COVID. You know, anyone that dies of COVID, which is also kind of an interesting conversation about the data. And what's unfortunate to me, my background is actually in data and data analytics. And so I've always said from day one, unless we really get this right, meaning we truly understand how we're categorizing patients um, and and understanding, is someone infected with COVID? Did they die of COVID Mm -hmm. or with COVID, right? We will not be able to go back uh, and have a true understanding and diagnosis almost like a post post-mortem of the pandemic and its impact on our society. Um, and right now, unfortunately, I think that our reporting and our, and all the data being aggregated is so skewed that we're flying blind. We truly don't know. Um, I, and I say that cautiously when I say we truly don't know, I think we don't know if you were to look strictly at the, the data on paper, but I do think we know um, from looking at the patients, right? We know for a fact that this virus, it does not impact the pediatric population. Um, I, and I knew interestingly enough, early on that this virus was not as, as deadly for people that were not elderly and didn't have comorbidities. I've, I continuously say based on the way the media was reporting it, you would think that you would open your front door and there would be bodies lying all over the, the, the you know, the street, um, like Spanish the, influenza, <laughs> right? Right. Like some kind of weird, um, you know, sci-fi movie, but that didn't happen. And I, and I remember early on going, you know, you'd see the, the hospitals, right. Um, if I had to go to the doctor early on during the pandemic, you drive past the, the emergency room entrance and everything continuously looked empty, which was surprising to me because I would turn on the news and you would see pictures of freezer trucks with bodies lined up and, to, and being told that our hospital systems were overwhelmed and overrun. And none of that and uh, seemed to come to fruition. None of the data supports that, mm-hmm. right? It was typically where you saw the epicenters. 
Mm -hmm. um, is that they moved. Um, it was typically large metropolitan areas with high minority populations. If you notice the suburbs weren't dying, I mean, rural mm -hmm. communities weren't dying. Um, so it, it goes back into that and possibly social determinants of health, socioeconomic status, things like that, access to um, healthcare, healthcare inequities. And so those communities were the ones that got hit the worst, like, you know, Skid Row, Los Angeles area, NYC, you know, downtown uh, Houston, um, Dallas area. I mean, you know, gosh, what was the epicenter in Louisiana? I can't remember. But I mean, those epicenters, they moved. I mean, after New York, why was it New York an epicenter the second time? It moved to California and Texas. Those were major metropolitan areas. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, if this was really devastating, like, the news was telling us, then we would have seen something similar to like the Spanish influenza situation where it was hitting everyone. It would start at the epicenter and move mm -hmm. out into the suburb and then rural communities um, and then jump communities as people traveled um, and mm -hmm. things like that. And that is simply not what we saw. I mean, if that were the case in like communities, Amish communities would have been decimated, right? Because right. they don't do any vaccines. Of my right. And, you know, they have, I guess, what you can say, poor healthcare options. I put that in quotation marks um, because mm -hmm. they, of, of their way of life, mm -hmm. but that's simply not what we saw. And, and people just kept tuning into their television and just kept buying what was going on when they were seeing that people weren't dying left and right. I mean, you'll see, oh yeah, I got COVID. I kicked it, you know, mm -hmm. things like that that's what you were hearing. But the only people that were dying were the people in the hospitals. And then they tried to say, oh, it's because they were the most critical. I'm like, no, that's not how epidemiology works. I mean, because with Ebola, we were, they were dying in their homes. They were dying in the streets. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, we would have seen a 1918 influenza type ish, a situation where they literally were dying in the homes and, you know, the wagon would have to come and you'd have to put a, a particular piece of cloth color up on your front door. Right. So they knew to come and take the bodies or not. Mm -hmm. That's what we would see in a true outbreak like that. And that's simply not what was going on here. You mm -hmm. only died if you went into the hospitals and nobody thought that was bizarre. It's kind of mm -hmm. like when the Nazis took the Jewish people to concentration camps, yeah. they only died in the concentration camps. They didn't die anywhere else right. in the world, just the concentration camps. And they weren't infecting anyone. <laughs> yeah. And they weren't infecting anyone because remember the whole thing is that, the, you know, they were spreading disease and, and you know, right. that whole anti-Semitism thing, right. but I mean, they only died in the concentration camps. They died nowhere else in the world. So that to tell you something that your germ theory is not working, right. you know, your epidemiological model is wrong. I mean, they even predicted that India would have a like 60 to 70% population decimation. Um, mm -hmm. with COVID because of, you know, they do have contaminated water. They do have very right. poor social determinants of health, things like that. I know I've been there working with the outbreaks and things like that, right. but how come they didn't? Your mm -hmm. model completely failed. Mm -hmm. And we should start asking those questions. Why did South America, uh, you know, countries that we look down on do so much better in their COVID response than you know, the United States, which is the superpower of right. the world. Maybe we got it wrong. Let's try something mm -hmm. different. Right. Right. And, and we know they were dying in the hospital, not because um, they were that critical, but because of the, the uh, protocol Protocols. that they were being in, introduced to. Um, so what's, what's next for you in this journey and in your fight? Um, gosh, that's a new question. I feel like, I mean, our, our mission statement is to educate, equip, and empower nurses, patients, and their families um, to advocate for themselves against the medical industrial complex. So we'll always be doing that. I mean, we have plenty of cases that have nothing to do related to COVID. Um, we, we're always educating patients on health and medications and improving their health and things like that. But as for like the COVID narrative, I feel that we are, we're done. I feel like we're done with COVID and we're moving on to the injured because now that's like the main thing that, that people are seeking health. They're spending thousands and thousands of healthcare dollars, trying to find an answer, trying to alleviate their suffering. 
and they aren't getting that answer. So we've been working with multiple doctors and clinics and allopaths and holistic doctors across the country, helping those people get the care that they need. Um, so that's one thing that we're doing. And we are starting to branch out more into health and wellness, trying to teach people to take care of themselves, better dietary choices, better lifestyle choices. So that way they don't actually need all of the allopathic care that they're getting. And we do a lot of just patient education. And then of course, I mean, with medical malpractice being the third leading cause of death, I mean, we're always going there. You're always going to need a nurse advocate. And so those are a lot of the things that we're doing. I mean, we we're not pigeonholed with COVID or with vaccine injury. We're about advocacy. So we're always going to be needed. It's just what tidal wave is hitting us this week um, that we're dealing with and making sure that our nurses are armed with the knowledge and the resources necessary to help those patients and families. Well, the work that you're doing is incredible and so necessary. Um, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. Tell everyone how they can follow the work that you're doing and access the care um, that you guys are providing. Sure. You can follow us on our social medias. We um, are always posting um, our classes and patient education material there. And our name is AmericanFrontlineNurses.com. So make sure you use the word American because if you use Americas, you're going to get sent to like weird, crazy sites. So it's AmericanFrontlineNurses.com. And you can follow us on all of the mainstream social medias, on all of the freedom-minded social medias. And um, on our website is where you'll be able to get a hold of a nurse advocate. You'll be able to get into our free telegram chat um, if you need help or have questions. We have a three times a week Ask an Advocate Zoom on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays right now. So you can get into that Zoom and have a talk with a nurse and dialogue with them about what's going on with your health and they can point you in the right direction and troubleshoot some of your problems. Um, yeah, and, and that's how you can get a hold of us, AmericanFrontlineNurses.com. All right, AmericanFrontlineNurses.com. Uh, I encourage everyone to go. I encourage everyone to follow the work that, that Nicole is doing and this organization. You guys are saving lives and we're so grateful for it. So keep up the good work. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure today. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. From all of us at the Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.